All right, in the 10 minutes or so we have left, we probably should do a little bit of science. This correspondent has encountered someone who might be able to explain this whole thing about gravity waves and a lot of other uh, uh, astrophysics in such a way that I can understand it and hopefully we can all understand it. In the meantime, I'm stuck with more questions than answers about this gravitational wave detection incident. I'm rather startled by some of the specifics that emerge from these news reports. They say that the two black holes, which set off this ripple in the, in the universe of uh, gravitational waves, were about 100 kilometers across. It's claimed that one had about 30 times as much mass as the sun, the other about 29. It was thought that the gravitational waves that uh, we detected came about when they got down to their final kilometer and then merged. It's estimated that three suns' worth of mass were turned into energy in the form of gravitational waves. It's been estimated that the coalescing black holes pumped 50 times more energy into space via these gravitational waves than the whole rest of the universe emanated in light, radio waves, X-rays, and gamma rays combined. And I, no, I, I, don't, I don't know how you're wrecking that stuff. I really don't. And how this detector was sensitive enough to pick up these waves, uh, I don't quite understand either. New scientists reported that uh, the LIGO detector picked up stretches and contractions in space-time as small as one ten-thousandth the diameter of a proton. And no, I, don't, I have no idea how you can measure something that small. I know my tape measure is no good. Another estimate of, of how little things actually shook back and forth was that these gravitational waves moved space-time about the width of a thumb over the distance of the breadth of the galaxy, which is 100,000 light years. I, I, I kind of give up at this point. Curious thing about the apparatus is they were basically testing it. It hadn't really fully come online yet. They were just basically calibrating it. They had uh, they revamped the apparatus to make it four times as sensitive as its previous incarnation, and what do you know? Bam! They no sooner set the thing up and start listening, and they pick up uh, gravitational waves. There's actually two detectors, one in uh, Louisiana and one in Washington, and the difference in the gravitational waves was about a hundredth of a second, which confirmed that that's what they thought they were. But how they calibrate from that uh, out into space to know how big the black holes were, you know, we're over our heads on this one, folks. We're going to see if we can't bring on a real expert and sort through this. Now, one thing we're not over our heads on in in, in discussing is, is one of our pet peeves on this radio program light pollution. There's a marvelous uh, set of stars and, 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 even, and even, you could say, galaxies to be visible to the naked eye out at night if you can get to a place that's dark enough. These days, in most of California, at least in anything that's not out in the deep backwoods, it's kind of hard to see our own Milky Way galaxy. We refer you to a wonderful summary on this in the Week magazine dated October 2nd, 2015, Talking all about light pollution, the piece notes that almost the entire eastern half of the U.S., also the West Coast, and in between every place with an airport large enough to receive commercial jets, are too lit up for a good view of the stars. And they estimate for the roughly the past two decades at least, two-thirds of the U.S. population has not been able to see the Milky Way at all. And unfortunately, things may get worse, being that we're at the dawn of the light-emitting diode era. Apparently, LED lighting is expected to significantly lower costs and spur competition. 
But LED lights produce light with a bluer cast, which is more efficiently scattered by the atmosphere, which has the potential to be the nail in the coffin for seeing stars in most communities. The piece does feature on a Tyler Nordgren. He's been going around the country giving lectures in national parks, knowing that people there do want to connect with nature, and they want to connect with the night sky. And these programs are turning out to be popular. Rangers tell Nordgren that the night programs that he's putting on get more attendance than all other programs put together. Now, I don't know much about the Bortle scale. I need to do some homework on that. But uh, apparently, uh, nine is bad, and one would be the best. And when they go out and show people skies that rate a one or a two, they are astounded. So once again, we encourage everybody to sometime in the next few weeks to months, take some time and to go out and get away from light pollution and just experience the night sky that uh, our ancestors grew up with. And basically everybody had at their disposal till uh, Edison's electric light about, well, what, 140 years ago? And speaking of the sky, we want to note the passing of Apollo astronaut Edgar Mitchell. Back on February 5th in 1971, Mitchell became the sixth man to walk on the moon. He was, the, he was there with uh, Apollo 14 crew member Alan Shepard. And after spending 34 hours on the lunar surface, Apollo 14 returned, and Mitchell, looking out the window at the stars and the Earth, felt that he was overwhelmed by a sense of oneness, of connectedness. By the way, Mitchell was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom for his help in devising procedures that got the crippled Apollo 13 space capsule and its three-man crew safely back to Earth. And frankly, it must have taken quite a bit of guts to have gone up on the next one after that happened to Apollo 13. Mitchell became quite an aficionado of, uh, well, what would you call this? I guess you would say maybe less than scientific explorations. I don't know. Mitchell, Mitchell, Mitchell reported that when he went to the moon, he conducted some surreptitious experiments on ESP and later claimed that um, they'd produce some you know, incredible results. Some of his alternative ideas did get mocked over the years, but uh, it's noted that his sense of perspective was unrivaled. Mitchell famously said, from out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty. You want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck and drag him a quarter of a million miles out and say, look at that, you son of a bitch. All right, here's, an, here's a science and technology item from the Nuts file. Writing in Slate.com, Apparently, a Daniel Engber has recently said it's time to kill all the mosquitoes. Now, it's true the Zika virus is currently spreading around the world, apparently causing birth defects and, uh, and uh, worrying people as we see more and more diseases, as we knew they would spread around our planet with uh, easier transportation and global warming. It's expected that we will see more chikungunya virus, dengue virus, and malaria in the years to come. And while it's undeniable that mosquito-borne diseases kill hundreds of thousands of people every year and cause, well, cause widespread human misery, is it really time to step up the fight and release genetically modified mosquitoes into the wild? Well, maybe. Maybe it is. You can certainly knock down mosquito populations and that can help, but the idea that we're going to kill all the mosquitoes is crazy. Evidently, recent tests in Brazil used genetically modified mosquitoes and reduced the population there by 90%, which is somewhat significant. I'm sure with the 10% of the mosquitoes that are left, they, they're still able to transmit disease pretty effectively in the human population, but you know, it might help a bit. 
Daniel Engberg commented that naturally eco-activists are resisting using GMO techniques to wipe out the species, but most scientists say that eliminating mosquitoes would have little or no impact on the food chain or natural ecosystems. Yeah, I'd like to know which experts they're talking to. Engberg apparently said mosquitoes are disgusting, parasitic creatures that are at war with humanity. It's time to give them hell. All I can say is down boy. We kind of suspect the war on mosquitoes will be about as smashing a success as has been the war on drugs and the war on terror. And another commentary that surprised us was one in Forbes.com by Henry Miller some months ago, looking at what's been happening to Chipotle, having some issues with apparently some food poisoning, E. coli contamination, salmonella, etc. Henry Miller said, the company's comeuppance is well-deserved. In all of its self-congratulatory new aginess, Chipotle eschews high-tech pesticides and rejects modern synthetic fertilizers. But food produced with such modern techniques is actually safer than food that reflects pandering to current fads. This guy's full of it. Pesticides and fertilizers are costing us enormously. And efforts to use less of them should be applauded, not condemned. Anyway, grump Henry Miller closed with Chipotle's negligence makes people sick and it needs new management. Let's see if there's a company left after the trial lawyers get through with it. Well, we hope he's wrong. Chipotle has some good ideas and how they want to they want to present food to the public and we hope they can, you know, get this sorted out. All right, we're just about out of time here and I, I just have so many topics I wanted to get to and they're laying in front of me and I we just aren't going to get to them today. That's so often the way it is on Radio Parallax. We want to once again thank Aaron Frankel, our public affairs director, for his effort in in keeping this program before you. Next week's show, we're going to try and take a look at uh, financial shenanigans from Wall Street, uh, a little piece on the origins of coal, some commentary on Sirhan Sirhan again being denied parole, because according to the parole board, he shows no remorse for the incident he can't remember. Mr. Mill and I had a chance to meet Mr. Paul Schrade, who was uh, the first person shot that night in the pantry at the Ambassador Hotel. And um, we may try and bring him on the show to talk about his efforts to expose the fact that while Sirhan Sirhan shot him, there's no good evidence that he fired the fatal shot that killed Robert Kennedy. You know, many years back, we did have a chance to speak with Sirhan's then-attorney, Lawrence Teeter, and we would refer you, dear listener, to that program. Although it seems incredible, the best evidence indeed suggests that Sirhan Sirhan was programmed to fire a gun that night as a diversion. We also note in closing the passing last week of Bob Elliott. Bob and Ray were two pretty funny guys, and in the next week's show we will play for you one of our favorite bits. The Slow Talkers of America. Our thanks to our good pal Mr. Wilders. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. This has been show number 700 and lucky 13. If shows were home runs, we'd be one behind Babe Ruth. We haven't hit it out of the park every time, but we're always trying. Just like the Babe. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.